welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi, everyone. Kelly Deutsch here. And today I have joining me Father Daniel Renault. And Father Daniel is what we call a holy actor and a dream worker. He's a spiritual director, teacher, and he's also a religious priest. Um, he's an adjunct faculty at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. And he's also the host of a new TV show on, on Catholic television called Becoming Fully Human. Uh, he's a perpetual student who loves sharing his passion for God, resilience, and the contemplative life. And I'm excited to have him on today because we've got some fun topics in store especially around dream work and shadow work and healing. So Father Daniel, I'm very excited to have you here with us. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I'm looking forward to this time together. Yes, I am as well. I'd love to start our conversation today, maybe with a little bit of your backstory on how you came into doing dream work, because I know you, you not only offer it, you know, privately to clients, but you also train other spiritual directors and offer workshops and how to do dream work. So how did you stumble upon this as a, as a Catholic priest? Well, um, I have to be honest in saying that it, it began as, uh, an experience before I was a religious priest. Hmm. So um, I come from a theater uh, background. I was a drama teacher and dream work was included in our training mm -hmm. as a form of looking at unconscious material to experience forms of raw creativity, so to speak. And so before I, I became uh, a priest and, and a spiritual director in training, I already had kind of like this uh, ground inside of me that had where dream work had been planted, mm -hmm. but it only grew more fully when I started doing my own spiritual um, work and also healing work myself. And I found that um, my prayer life and, and, you know, as well as I do, you're a life coach and a spiritual director, people will, will often use words to hide from as opposed to expose what is really going on. And so I became more and more aware that there was this unconscious uh, inside of me through dreams and shadow work that um, needed to be looked at. So as I did dream uh, work with spiritual directors, I became more and more attracted. And then I found that not all directors were open or comfortable with doing dream work. So I began to seek people who had experience in dream work. And I was very lucky about 10 years ago, I had a spiritual director whom uh, was a Jungian analyst. And she had the ability to accompany me uh, through spiritual direction by using dream work. Now, at first it was occasional. We would do like a dream once in a while, 
And then the more I did dream work, the more it became clear that it was a place where God spoke to me uh, without too many resistances coming from my part. And also I was becoming more comfortable with the idea that it was a little jumbled and not clear because when I brought it to the spiritual director, what would come out would often be not ego driven in my uh, wanting to understand what God might be communicating to me. And so I found that there was a quote unquote, a certain level of surprise, but as well of purity with the material that came through my dreams and shadow work that often didn't come through when I was trying to, you know, self-analyze or try to figure out what was going on in my own spiritual life. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm hearing that it was um, not filtered as much through the ego since it was raw unconscious, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. And even um, I would say that um, I personally didn't do much dream work alone. Hmm. I always did it with somebody. And I think that's what brought me to wanting it, to wanting to do it by myself as well as, as a spiritual practice. Hmm. So normally I will do once or twice a week as my spiritual hour of prayer. Um, I will do, um, I will work on a dream as a way to enter into relationship with God and, and see if God is trying to reach me and um, how I'm responding. Hmm. For those of us who have never done any kind of dream work before and are just kind of curious about what this even is, like, what is the significance of our dreams? And is God always speaking through our dreams or sometimes it's just a kind of random firing of your brain or what, how, what would you say to that? Like, what is this? Well, I would think that um, not all dreams are significant. You might put it that way, okay. uh, but there are times in our lives, I think, for instance, when we think about the pandemic, you know, there are people who did and do say, and studies have been done on this, who reported dreaming more Mm -hmm. as a way of unloading some of the spiritual or psychological angst that was being created by the threat of this invisible uh, virus that was um, really um, befuddling us and also confusing us and just upending a lot of our lives and our calendars. And I think that um, somehow the interior life gets a little more intense when we are in more unusual circumstances. So I would say that I would pay attention to my dreams more in transitional phases, like before someone would get married, before a new job. Um, I even go to say that when I have people that come on retreats, I tell them, try to pay attention to some of your dreams before you come on retreat or when you leave, because they might be either bookends or openings into avenues that you haven't thought really of exploring, but that your dreams might be pointing in a certain direction. So it's more being attentive um, to um, the invisible life of dreams. You know, it's like a play. Hmm. Uh, I come from a theater background. So to me, it's like, it's like a play that um, either God or my psyche, depending on how I see the dream being significant in my life, um, is kind of like writing and, and, it's, and it's being written as it's happening. And there are characters and smells and, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, and some people dream in color, some of them very elaborate. 
Um, so I think the first thing to do is to honor that they happen and then and then um then start to sieve you know is there some meaning there you know dreams um are not foreign to the spiritual life when you look at scripture the jewish people in the talmud have a a certain section on it where they say that any dream that's not explored is like an unopened letter from mm. god mm. and they also say that there's a possibility that uh, there might be 24 different layered meanings to one single dream. Hmm. Uh, the Christians um, and uh, in the New Testament, um, Joseph had four very significant dreams and dreams are present in both the Old Testament or the First Testament and the New Testament or, or the Second Testament. So they're not, and visions and dreams might be included in the same kind of way that God communicates God's self where people are actually acting on their dreams, which is really interesting when you think about it, because it's not just about listening, it's about how people are acting mm. on their dreams. Um, and I think that that's even more important than just, otherwise it might become somewhat of navel gazing, just, just getting fascinated by your, your own interior life. But acting on your dreams, I think is just as important as noticing them. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I think of some conversations that I've had lately just about the contemplative life and how, how important it is to have that active life paired with it. And that I, I think in a lot of modern circles, when we talk about the contemplative and the active, the assumption is that active means social justice, you know, that you're a social justice warrior. However, even though, you know, that's a wonderful thing, I don't think that's, you know, at least in our Catholic tradition, what was typically meant or not exclusively that, you know, it's like that life of virtue. And is it changing the way that you live your life and responding to your spouse, your coworkers, your kids, or how gentle you are with yourself when you mess up or, you know, all of those little things, that's, that's the active life, the, the life of virtue and how it's incarnating what we've received in our interior life. Yes. And that's an excellent point because you're really uh, touching on a very important aspect of dream work is it really has to do with our relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God. And mm. um, acting on it is, is very important. You don't want to rush things um, or see dreams too quickly as foreboding or foreshadowing something, but certainly noticing uh, what's happening. I'll give you an, a very quick example. Last night, I had a dream about hugging um, a character that is part of my past uh, life before I was a priest and that person was resisting being loved and I thought okay so the action that I'm called to do today from this piece of the dream is that I want to continue to let God love me and not resist that and and do it actively today so if if people are manifesting love to me, or if I'm being hard on myself, I'm going to catch myself. And it's very simple. It's an interior motion, um, but um, it has very practical implications that don't necessarily mean that I, I'm going to go out and hug people, right? Uh, but that will radiate um, in my daily life. That's an interesting example. And it makes me curious because I think some of us in 
you know, thinking of what dream work might be, especially if we've not done it, or some people who have might take that as an immediate sign of like, oh my gosh, I need to go look up this person from, you know, 30 years ago and go and give them a virtual hug and tell them that they're loved, you know, that that's the sign from God. And that's, you know, maybe how they'd interpret it instead of looking at like, what if that's me? <laughs> like, what if, yes. you know, and I wonder, is that how it overlaps perhaps with some shadow work of seeing yourself in the various characters in the dream? Yes. Yes. Uh, darker characters or, or characters that exhibit certain, um, uh, what, what Jung called uh, manifestations of the shadow self would be uh, people that stand out in your dreams that act the way you don't self-perceive normally. Mm. For instance, if I'm a very gregarious, extroverted person, it might be that the shadow part of me could be very quiet, very calm, very focused. Or it could be that if I see myself as very gentle, a character would get very angry with me or, or, or there'd be an angry character. So those would be manifestations of the self. In the dream I just related, I wonder if this could also be what we might call the manifestation of, the, of, of a shadow that would be light as opposed to dark shadow. Um, because there is such a thing as our inner giftedness and our inner abilities that are also repressed and denied. And I think that a light shadow, so the ability to receive love might be something that is part of my light shadow that, that I'm able to do it, but that I'm invited to do it more. So uh, when you're connecting dream work with shadow work, you're certainly touching on some very important elements of dream work where different characters might portray both your dark but also uh, a light shadow, or you might call it um, inner ability to behave in virtuous or gifted ways that you don't see that have been um, either enacted or practiced in your own life, or that are in potentiality. They're wanting mm. to, to come out. Um, and Jung believed that often with, with women that would manifest itself with male characters and with men with more uh, female characters where they would represent the other side, the other gender and how um, that is an internal thing. Uh, but he did believe that if we did that, it would affect also our outer relationships. So it's about relationship with the self, but it's never disconnected from our relationship with others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm always curious about shadow work and I find that to be really powerful as well because I feel like it's such a coming home to yourself instead of projecting everything out there like somebody that I despise or really annoys me and just gets under my skin and recognizing like okay what is it in them that annoys me maybe it's their self-righteousness and bringing that home to myself of like oh when when do I do that because I'm probably projecting what I hate so that it's easier to hate out there instead of in me. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, some union uh, analysts and psychologists have gone as far as saying that um, societal division is based on projecting the shadow part of ourselves in a collective manner. So your example is more an individual manner, but it, it could also be done in, in, um, in a collective way. I'm a French Canadian. Mm -hmm. I come from a French Canadian background. And, um, you know, we had a, a very uh, contradictory relationship with English speaking people because we 
lost the war. The French lost the war to the British. The British won. The French were able to practice their culture and their religion, but there was all, always this um, anti-feeling towards English people. And it's easy to say, oh, because this person was English speaking, um, somehow they are bad. Uh, they are going to oppress us. You, you can carry a cultural shadow, not just an individual shadow. And of course, in, in the US, we've had manifestations of that um, through um, all of the issues regarding racism and, yeah. and how often we are very ethnocentric and, mm -hmm. and tend to view the other culture from a point of view of projecting the darker parts of herself on them and not seeing them for who they are. And of course they do the same. Um, you know, it's a game that, it's the kind of dance that, you know, people play more easily uh, with one another. Mm. Because when you do it by yourself, when the other doesn't enter into it, it kind of, um, it, it really dulls the dynamic. Hmm. Can you give me an example of that, of, of that collective shadow and how, you know, either I might or you might or somebody, you know, on the street might recognize when I'm playing into that collective shadow instead of bringing that home to myself and seeing like, okay, I'm, maybe I'm projecting that. Yeah, any form of prejudice. Uh, let's say I don't ex accept my own weakness. I could project that uh, people of a different color or a different ethnic background are weak or vulnerable. Uh, and I would project my vulnerability or my weakness onto them. And it, and it, and it could also be um, a, a projection where um, when, when I enter into a relationship with myself and, and notice it, as, as you say, uh, but it's more difficult collectively because how do you change that collectively? See, working on and doing quote unquote shadow work by yourself or with a group is one thing, but doing it as a culture is a completely different ballgame. Mm -hmm. It becomes much more complex because so many people are involved and some of the ideologies are so entrenched. Mm -hmm. So I've done shadow work with groups and I've done, um, I've also done, and, and I'm in training right now to do dream work in groups. And when you do it in groups, you're, you're, um, the blinders that you wear um, become more, um, cl become clearer as you do the work. And some of the defenses come down. Of course, like any group work, it's important to do it with a, a feeling of respect and of trust with each other. But you know, when you share dreams with each other, I mean, you're sharing the holiest of holies, you know, other than sexuality, dreams are probably the most private things um, we have and, and experience. And so when we're sharing them with others and risk sharing, then I think healing can begin because um, when you're doing it as a group, then how can you not to a certain degree end up doing um, and realizing certain things that would not be available to you? Like, I think, every congregation should have a dream group. Mm -hmm. And I think that the pastor there should be in contact with them and, and ask them, how is it going? What are people dreaming about? What, what's coming up in this that can help um, healing? Um, one author 
um, speaks about a, a dream group he did in a prison. And um, there was this really tough kind of uh, big guy who was the ruler, so to speak, in this uh, cell block. And when they started doing dream work together about their experience of their own father and the violence and or the emotional absence that they experienced, they found out all this vulnerability that they had that they were capable of displaying with each other. And um, within a very short period of time, the, uh, the dream uh, group actually influenced the ethos and the climate uh, inside the cell block where they found that the cell block and the people in the cell block were less verbally and physically violent with each other mm. because mm. they had touched on that deep wound of having had a terrible uh, relationships with their uh, fathers and um, images of masculinity that were very skewered and unidimensional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that can be so powerful when we share any kind of vulnerability together. Like, I, I think that really is the seedbed of all healing is being able yeah. to share vulnerability and safety. Yeah, absolutely. In a couple, you know, if you don't have that, how, how can you really share that deep love that you have for each other? Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and it's a discipline. It's a form of asceticism, I think. Hmm. Um, you know, asceticism, the original word of asceticism is, means practice, hmm. to practice this. Um, what do we practice with each other uh, in vulnerable spaces that make us available to one another? And when we do it with each other, then, you know, other people see us do it and they can be invited in it. They can't be forced, of course not but that can be invited in it. And I think that doing our own inner work, but also encouraging others and to support communities to do it, that's what brings healing. I mean, mm-hmm. I believe that, you know, laws, um, discipline, um, politics, all of those, we need to have those so that we live as a society. But I also think that some of these really important um, vulnerable spaces we create with one another, whether it's in congregations or in our relationships or in our families, are really key um, to healing our society. You know, Teilhard de Chardin used to say that when you give uh, to the poor, when the money falls into the hand of the poor, the repercussions go throughout the entire universe. It's like when you throw a walk and a rock in water. And I think our inner work and our group work in dream and shadow and being true uh, and real and face our, our true issues have the same impact. Hmm. Yes, I completely agree. How doing your own inner work, both practically and in some sort of intangible, profound way, you know, whether you call it spiritual, quantum, whatever labels you want to use, but has some sort of impact throughout the universe, you know, that whole butterfly effect, you know, of a butterfly flaps its wings and, you know, there's (laughs) like a hurricane or something. Yeah, exactly. On the other Mm -hmm. side of the world. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, Christians might say this is the Holy Spirit at work, you know, and others might explain it in other ways. But the, the, the bottom line is that when you feel 
and you own your own inner work and it's not someone else's responsibility and you're willing to journey with others, then you create communities of healing, of resilience that um, have an impact on others. But it, re it requires, um, I have to be honest, a fairly high level of commitment. Like when I first started dream work, I realized how much work it was um, because, you know, I dream every night. I'm a dreamer and may, everybody dreams. It's just, I, I happen to remember them a lot, but um, that also means that I have to put time aside to do this kind of, uh, of work. And that's why I inserted into my spiritual discipline uh, so that um, it really is integrated in, in my journey with, with God and with me being a, a wholesome minister, a wholesome priest that can be really there for, for others and, and not work from my own projections. You know, that can have terrible consequences when you're a leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes all the difference, whether you are a healer yourself, you know, whether you're, you know, a therapist, a minister, a coach, a spiritual director, nurse, whatever, or you're yeah. just any other average human being on the planet earth the more you do your inner work, the more you're able to offer healing presence to others. And I think that's so powerful in that example that you shared of, of that cell block in the prison. Like there is concrete measurable results of how this changes cultures. You know, even if it is just a microculture, but still, if we have enough of those microcultures that begin to overlap and touch one another, like that's, I think, one of the most powerful ways to impact culture. I think so too. And I, and I, as I say, I'm, I'm fine with people who impact culture by, you know, going out there and signing petitions and doing the other stuff. But my, my contention is what if you do that with the inner work being present, mm. won't it color and change your motivations, mm. you know, and won't it give it a different, um, uh, tone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that um, that is very important. Uh, I, I'm very um, comfortable with each of us having their own gifts. And um, I believe that uh, some people have the ability uh, to, to go out there and be very action oriented. And, um, and I also believe that some people also have this kind of gift for contemplation. Now, both of them are related, as you said earlier, uh, but it seems like there are people who have a greater ability to go to the contemplative part and others that seem to have the propensity to go to the action part. If we stay within the shadow uh, paradigm to explain this, I would say that we need contemplatives to be more active and we, we need people who are active to go towards contemplation because whatever is your focus, it what's going to happen is the other part will be what is quote unquote repressed or will stay dormant inside. So yes. if you look after that part, you're much more whole. Mm -hmm. Yes. I love that. And that's perhaps one of my favorite parts of shadow work is just the, the wholeness that it can engender by bringing those, um, parts of us that kind of atrophy in the dark, whether they're repressed or just ignored or whatever it is, but to recognize, okay, like I'm not only called to be a contemplative, I'm called to be active or for the, you know, warriors out there doing the hard systemic work and political change. Like, are you grounded in contemplative 
existence being presence so that we can bring our whole selves to the world. Yes, absolutely. And, and to see um, the connection, uh, you know, when I was, I'm a missionary, I belong to a missionary order. So it's all about getting out there, connecting with culture and people, speaking the word of God, but also getting to know them and really getting into the messiness of life. That's why I picked the order I'm with, because they were so close to people. They mm -hmm. didn't have this kind of distance where they saw their religious or their priesthood as separating them from, from the rest of, of the world. They, but there are people who, have, who are contemplative and who live separate from the world. Mm -hmm. And they have their, their own uh, charism. And, and, and I think that there's a complementarity there that we also need to, to appreciate. But we can't have it as a cop-out. You know, I've had a couple of people say, well, I'm not a contemplative. I let the contemplatives pray for me. And I say to them, well, if you're doing that, I'm really eager to see who you minister to and how they perceive you. Mm. Because if you don't do your prayer work and your contemplative work, it's going to color your ministry or your life. If you're a parent and you don't work on yourself, you know that it's going to influence your kids. Mm -hmm. If you don't self-accept, how are your kids going to self-accept? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. You know, if, if you're very demanding with yourself, don't they get the message that being demanding with themselves is how they're going to get results? Mm-hmm. So if, yeah. if there is no awareness of doing that kind of work, it, it, uh, it inevitably bleeds onto all of our relationships. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, what's coming to mind is how many of us um, get angry at all of the injustices that are happening in the world and sometimes act more out of the anger rather than acting out of love for you know, whatever person is in front of us and how a part of that is that shadow work of saying like, okay, yes, anger is a legitimate response to injustice, but do I want to act in anger or do I want to act in love? Um, and yeah. it's not like I I've had conversations, you know, with friends before who are like, you know, but I, I need my anger in order to like work for the oppressed, you know? And I, I see that, um, but I also see how limited that can be then for the, the lasting change of, of actually changing hearts. Absolutely. You know, what you're saying right now is reminding me of uh, Daniel Berrigan. Mm -hmm. Daniel Berrigan, who did some um, outstanding social justice work. And, you know, towards the end of his life, he admitted that a lot of the reason why he was doing what he was doing is because he, he was angry at his own father and that a lot of um, the injustice and the anger and, and how he powered his ministry through anger. H however, having said that, um, you know, he was part of a movement uh, that really saw that when you did do justice work, you had to pray first and make sure that you were not doing it from a violent place. The whole idea of nonviolence is so that the anger becomes a motor, but it doesn't become what uh, the vehicle, like it doesn't tell you where you're going. Mm. It might give you the energy. And I, I agree with certain people that that kind of anger, anger is legitimate, but the tone of how you do it, you know? Mm. Like I'm thinking of the movement MAD. Are you familiar with that? When it, many years ago, it was started by mothers mm. who had kids who died 
it by people who were drunk or who their kids were drunk and, and lost their life through it. And they created this association and they created it out of anger. At the beginning, the anger they felt was what um, really gave a certain energy to what they were doing. I would imagine that staying in that energy though could be incredibly um, demanding. And, and also you wonder, as you say, if it's not counter indicative, if it's not done with love, then we all know that anything that's not done with love can be questioned just because the motives um, always need to be looked at. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we can um, also change gears. I, I've been curious as we were preparing for this conversation, I was trying to um, think in my own life about dream work and shadow work and, and pay attention to some of my own dreams. And so I wrote down a few that have happened in the last week. And oh. I was curious if you'd be willing to just demonstrate for us like what it's like to do dream work, because I personally have never worked with another person doing dream work. You know, I've toyed around a little bit with my own dreams, but I'd love to see and share with our audience who's listening to what it's like to do dream work with another person. Sure. I'd be happy to listen to your dreams. Cool. Um, I, I wrote down a couple and scribbled them. Um, I'll let you guide however this, you know, whatever I need to do. If you want me to set the scene or just describe what happened or you tell me. Okay. So normally when I do dream work, I say to people, um, go where the energy is. If we have to pick a dream, go where the energy is. And also I'll ask people if they can think of giving a title to their dream, the one that they've picked, Mm -hmm. then they, they tell me the dream from what they've written. And then I ask them um, to retell the dream, but without reading Hmm. so that they go back into it. And often when that happens, people will re-experience the dream. And because they're inside the dream, other elements might come out that Hmm. weren't there when they wrote it down. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you're um, re-experiencing the dream. And for this reason, we always do dream work by relating the dream as if you were there and using the present tense. Hmm. So I always say to people, don't say, in my dream, I was entering a door. It's more, I'm entering a door and then I see this, et cetera, et cetera. So using the present tense is also a way to enter uh, into the, uh, back into the, the flow and the mystery of the dream. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I have, um, out of the few that I wrote down, I have one that stands out a little more than the others. So um, okay. Can I go ahead and read it to you? Go ahead. I just need to take some notes. I often take a scribble a few notes just as as a reminders. Absolutely. Yes, I do that all the time. Great. Okay. So I'm going to title this dream a new old house. Um, so my house sold and I'm taking a walk and I'm not, I can't quite recall. I'm either, um, going to visit or maybe I'm just meandering in the neighborhood. I think I'm with two of my sisters and I recently sold this house that I loved and we reached the neighborhood and I see my house that I sold has been knocked down and it's replaced by a glass office building. 
and I'm surprised at this. And next door to it, I think, is another office building, even though, you know, the house was originally in a, in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And a woman comes out of this glass building that used to be my house and invites me inside. And inside, it's like, I'm, the impression that I get is that it's an accounting firm or like a bank or something like that. And there are lots of people seated kind of in this open floor plan around this U-shaped table and they all have their little computers in front of them. And most of them are women. And I recognize a handful of them are my former coworkers. Um, And so I greet the ones that I know. And um, for some reason, I think the lady tells me that downstairs that in the basement, it's still the same as my old house. Um, that it's, you know, hasn't been knocked down or, um, to be this glass office building. So I go downstairs and I have one employee following me. And I think it's someone that I went to school with in the past. Like I recognize her, she's blonde. Um, I don't know her super well though, but when I get downstairs, it's not my old house. It's the vestibule of a church. Um, and I don't really remember much after that. I remember being kind of, you know, surprised at that, but that's where my memory ends. All right. Well, thanks for offering this. There's a lot in there. Um, my, um, the, the first thing I do is I ask a few questions mm-hmm. just to see if there are certain things that could be uh, fleshed out a little more or things that I didn't get in terms of the images or the order. Sure. And so that I, so that I, uh, I get more familiar with your dream. And I consider all dreams to be uh, the holy of holies, very mm-hmm. sacred. So I thank you for offering it to me. And as I do this, after I've asked, uh, I will ask a few questions. I will start using a little phrase before each time I speak. I would say, "If this was my dream," mm-hmm. and then it would it would be a projection of me entering into the dream, and um, paying attention or, or being touched or having maybe an insight on something that I will offer you, but you're the ultimate interpreter of the dream. All I'm doing is I'm appreciating the dream with and for you. Hmm. So I'm walking with you with this in the same way you do with spiritual direction, except I, I always remind myself and you that this is your dream. It is not mine. And then when I give you something, it's a projection and it could fit or not fit because I'm mm. not a, de- a dream interpreter. I'm not a psychologist or a therapist. I'm a dream worker and I appreciate the dream. Mm. Okay. So I have a, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a few questions. The first one would be um, the, the house that you sold, was it an actual house in your real life? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, and you say you're with two, two sisters, mm-hmm. two of your own sisters in your own yes. family, or there are two sisters themselves to each other. Yeah. Both? My, my biological sisters. Yeah. Okay. All mm-hmm. right. Um, and you say that this is, was a house that you, um, you loved. Yes. And so you had to sell it in the dream, uh, and well, and in real life. So just a few, in the last couple of months, I went through the process of, of selling my house. So I had moved, you know, from, from South Dakota to Oregon. So I went back and sold this house that I just loved and, 
gave me so much joy. It was everything that I needed it to be. And so it was hard to let go of it. Okay. So there's a dimension of, of letting go of something that was really meaningful and important to you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so the, the house has been converted into an office building and you go inside and there's a U-shape um, kind of office layout and it's women in front of computers, mostly women, you say. Mm -hmm. And um, you are invited by a, and you say some of those you identify as being your co-workers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Former co-workers. Correct. And then you say that um, one of them invites you to go downstairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't remember if it was the lady who invited me into the office in the first place, or if it's this woman that I recognize. Um, and I honestly can't even remember where I would have studied with her, but I have a clear face and I think her name's Jen. And I'm like, I don't know if it was high school or college or Italy or like, but somewhere along the line, I met Jen. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. So she's somebody from your past. Mm -hmm. Was there a positive connection with Jen? Um, I would say neutral to positive. Like we were acquaintances. We had classes together. Um, we would talk sometimes, but you know, we never hung out outside of class. Okay. All right. Um, and then you go downstairs mm -hmm. with Jen. Mm -hmm. And as you are downstairs, you see that it's not really your old house, but it's a church. Mm -hmm. And can you describe that church? What does it look like? Yeah, well, we're kind of we're in the entryway. And um, I it strikes me as one of those older churches from the Midwest that, um, uh, let's see, let me see how I describe this, has older carpet under our feet. There are um, wood doors that lead into, you know, the main body of the church in front of us. Uh -huh. There are a couple stairs that go up to that. So um, the entryway into the church has these big wooden doors. And then there's, you know, the carpeted area, a couple stairs up and then doors into the, into the main church. And if you had three words to describe this church, like um, to qualify it, mm. um, what would they be? Three qualifiers. Yeah. Um, the, the three words that just immediately pop into mind without censoring them are old, stuffy, and pretty. <laughs> <laughs> old stuffy and pretty mm -hmm. okay it, it is uh i just want to commend the fact that you don't censor because then um it's much easier to work with mm. um when, when you're not censoring when it's the first thing that comes to mind mm. there's something where it's 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 i guess the word pure might be it's just more direct uh connection to it I also, when you did it and you close your eyes, um, non-verbally, there seemed to be a positive energy when you mm -hmm. recall this place. So it's old, it's stuffy, and it's pretty, but there's also a, uh, a positive energy when you closed your eyes to recall it, there was a smile on your face. Yeah, I think overall positive, like there's some sort of sense of familiarity, you know? I mean, having grown up Catholic, 
that felt like a very familiar place. Um, even though there wasn't, you know, I can't name it as like St. Anthony's church in, you know, some particular right. place, but, um, you know, it would have been very different had it been the entryway to a Protestant church where I didn't grow up and that would have felt foreign. So there's a certain familiarity to this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, familiarity would be another word that would be tied to this. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, so let me offer you some of my projections. I think I've asked you enough questions um, and I will offer some of my projections. Um, as I let go of this old house, I feel a sense of grief inside mm-hmm. of me. And when I see the office, there's a, a people working, it's, it's like the shift of vocation of the space Mm. is really jarring. It goes from being homey and loving to a place where people are working. They're working in the U-shape. If this was my dream, I'd be intrigued by this U-shape somehow. Mm. Um, For some reason, I would wonder why are they in that? Because in a dream, um, most of the time, innocuous things like word plays, shapes, colors might reveal something deeper than, than we think. Hmm. I mean, that, that's how our, our psyche really work. And so, um, and if this was my dream, going downstairs uh, would be a, a feeling and or maybe even a call to go deeper regarding how I'm feeling about this lost home. Hmm. Like in many dreams, the, um, you might say the problem or the exposition of what is happening, the dream itself might hold some key as to how to not necessarily solve, but at least bring um, integration so dreams have an integrative value, hmm. even within a single dream. So if this was my dream, I would wonder, why is the bottom part where I, I go deeper, why is it a church and not my home anymore? That would intrigue me. Hmm. It, could it be that for me, this sense of uh, loving home and the grief that I have towards it um, has a sense of me wanting to seek deeper into familiarity so that I can um, feel the grief, but also let go of the love that I had for this house. It's almost like, might sound a little too simplistic. It's almost like the, the homey or sort of the familiarity or hominess of the church would be kind of a call to go to the place where I feel safe and that, uh, but, and that is a kind of like, quote unquote, another deeper home, mm-hmm. not just a physical place, but a, a, a deeper inner place, you know, uh, churches are often images for inner and, and going downstairs, Jung and many other dream workers say that when you go down, there's something about changing levels and entering deeper within your own reality. And, mm. and, and because of that, 
whatever happens downstairs uh, can be revealing in many ways. It could be going down to the dark place, but it could also be going down to a lighter place or a place that calls for um, um, a, a form of resolve regarding something that the dream, it's almost like the dream is asking and positing a question. And often there will be an image in the dream that will invite to enter into relationship with that question that's being asked. And it has the beginning of an answer in there. Mm. Does any of what I have said um, either fit or not fit for you or ring a bell? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, even though, you know, I didn't, I don't think I explicitly used the word grief with you, but that's something that I've recognized over the past several weeks is that there is a sense of grief that I've carried um, letting go of a place that met my needs so well, you know, and was um, a place that I it was like a haven for me, you know, and recognizing not only the good of what I'd lost, like being right next to a lake and overlooking a field and, um, you know, vaulted ceilings and bright and spacious and just everything that I viscerally love. Mm. Um, but that invitation to go deeper and find that, that home within the, that place of safety. Um, I find it kind of ironic that, that that would be a church underneath. Mm -hmm. And also that it was the entryway of a church because I've also had some like religious trauma and things. So sometimes churchy things can, can be a little activating for me. Like, Oh, this, this doesn't feel comfortable, but the fact that it did feel comfortable and familiar, but I was not like totally immersed in the church. I was still kind of on, you know, the outside. On the entryway. Fully... Yeah. Yes. 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 So that's absolutely. intriguing to me. Yes. Well, there might be an invitation there that, you know, staying at the entryway is, you know, especially if you've been traumatized by church, mm -hmm. um, then that the, the entryway represents, will you come in or not kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what I find interesting about what you, you've talked about uh, regarding the house that you let go, I put the word grief there because you said it was really hard to let it go. Mm -hmm. So that's why I use the word grief, but you're right. You did not use the word grief, but I felt like there was a sense of loss there. Yeah, you know? yeah there definitely you was. Know? Yeah, and you know, in dreams, dreams um, also connect things at an analogical level. So it's possible that losing something you loved with a house, if this was my mm -hmm. dream, I'll repeat that. Mm -hmm. It could be that there might be something where the trauma of church, you also lost something there. That's very true. That you are looking to either regain or reconnect with. And the best way to do it is to get at the entrance. Mm. And entering anywhere is the beginning of something. Mm. Mm -hmm. I'm writing this down. So your, your dream is a great example of how within a dream, there are images that connect and also that it's layered. Mm -hmm. So the house represents many things. The church can represent many things. And even the idea of trauma and or at least uh, grief or loss is also interwoven in there. And you see, 
I'm not sure that that's how you saw the dream when you first looked at it. Yeah, no, as I was looking at the dreams ahead of time, I was like, yeah, I don't know how much is in any of these things. I mean, I, I knew that there was some kind of latent sense of grief with the house. So I knew there was a little bit of energy there, but I, you know, I mean, when I woke up and scribbled this down, I didn't really make much of it. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really interesting to see how much can come out when you unpack it with someone. Yeah, one of the major things that we need to remember when we dream, and in our society, it, it, it very discursive and very rational, analytical in many ways, although it's also very irrational at times. <laughs> but because the discursive and the rational and the intellectual are really put forward as being, you know, scientific mindset, what actually happens is I think that when we have a dream, we are quick to draw conclusions and meanings and we go too fast. Hmm. And so what we need to remember is when we look at our dream, the either God or psyche, the Holy Spirit or inner self, call it what you will, is trying to communicate something that the dreamer does not already know. Hmm. And, and that's what makes the dream so attractive, but also for some people so frustrating because they're trying to get at certain images that some or meanings that they just, you need to be very patient with some of your dreams. And, and you can get a meaning from a dream. It could take weeks, months, some people years. I had a directee, she couldn't figure out what her dream meant and she had it, she was 11 years old and she was 83 when we met. And wow. she said, I know you do dream work. And she said, can I tell you my dream? And I had it twice, she said, when I was eight and 11. And the dream became this big dream that spoke about her entire vocational life. Mm. But at the time, she didn't know. Wow. So uh, this is an extreme example, but you know, we need to hold, and, and in a society that really emphasizes productivity, uh, immediacy, et cetera, along with rationality, going to dream work as a certain element of subversiveness in the same way than, than doing contemplative work. So mm -hmm. I really appreciate um, that um, you offered this dream because it's a really good example. And uh, for you to trust uh, um, open it up to me, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for being a safe space to be able to share that with. It's um, sure. Yeah, sure. yeah, I'm intrigued. I feel like I gotta go sit with that further now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I will leave you with that. If this was my dream, I would want to interact more and have a conversation and go back to the entrance of the church mm. and see what happens there. What do I need to say to God, to myself? Um, how does it feel to be there? It's almost like entering deeper and more conversation with the image because dreams have the same quality that scripture has. It's got a revelatory energy to it. So you can continue to interact with it and it will tell you something that you don't know yet. Hmm. Yeah, I like thinking of it almost as like a Lexio Divina or something, you know, where you kind of mull over it and see what emerges and, and you can read the same passage over and over, you know, I mean, dozens of yeah. times over the years and something new can emerge each time. Yeah. Yeah. And I need to add one thing. Because you were um, traumatized by church, I also appreciate that you shared this with me as a priest. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to say that, that 
to me, it, I mean, it's moving that you're able to share that. Um, yeah. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I mean, a whole nother, um, you know, hour that we could talk about is, um, you know, just um, trauma and religious trauma in particular. I know there's a lot of folks listening who have experienced something um, in that regard, um, being hurt yep. themselves or rejected or violated or whatever, whatever the trauma was. Um, and it is, I think, a very um, sacred thing to be able to meet spiritual leaders, ministers, teachers that we can viscerally feel safe around, you yeah. know? And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of folks don't feel comfortable going to institutional church anymore. Cause they're like that, nope, can't touch it. Um, but to be able to find still circles or places, environments where we can still be deeply in touch with what is most spiritual and whole and real in us, because, you know, speaking from the eye seat, I can say that while some of the things that I would call religious, you know, or churchy might feel um, uncomfortable or activating at times, but the spiritual core is so deeply alive for me still. And so mm. being able to find places where that feels um, free and able to spread out a little bit, that's a really beautiful thing. So Thank you as well for being able to be a safe, safe place for that. Thanks. Thank you, Kelly. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been delicious. <laughs> it's fun <laughs> being able to, I, I love Jungian work. I love exploring the inner world. And um, I think especially the Jungian concepts, whether dream work, shadow work, I think there's something that we're all intrigued about, but sometimes feel a little esoteric. Um, like, I don't quite know how to work through that. So finding folks, whether it is a dream group or, you know, working one-on-one -on -one with you or anyone else who has that kind of experience can be really rewarding um, to explore those things. Like you said, that um, it's like dreams have something to share with you that you don't already know. Um, otherwise, they probably wouldn't have shared it in that format. Exactly. You know, it's like it would have come yeah. into your conscious mind in another way. Exactly. And, you know, um, they, they're very, they're like God, I believe they're very persistent. Mm. So if you don't get it, it's okay, because eventually it'll come back. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, dreams like God and like our lovers and friends um, uh, are very patient with us. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I think that's a, an amazing gift we give to others to, to, to mirror that kind of patience, not to hurry things. In, in a very result-oriented society, I think there's there's something wonderful about that. Mm. You know, it's okay, it's gonna come back. I don't need to fix this right now. You know, for your listeners, I think it's important to know that, um, you know, we don't have to do all the work all the time. Um, and, and and when we do, the process is much more important than the result. Mm, yeah. That's a really great reminder, the, the unrushedness of it all and the, the holy waiting, you know, that we don't have to force something to be born, but it, it'll be born when it's ready. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, Father Daniel, Beautiful. if people want to learn more about you and your work, um, where should they go? Well, they can go on the Oblate School of Theology um, page and find me. They can mm -hmm. go to my Facebook page. 
um, which is Father Daniel Renault OMI. I post regularly on there, and I will also post the uh, TV show that I'm starting, uh, which is kind of exciting for me because it's a new avenue, new area. I get to preach through the media, um, which is what a lot of us have learned to do recently. Mm -hmm. And um, so I can be found through the Oblate School of Theology and or the Facebook page and people can get in touch with me. I also have some videos of some of the classes I've given or conferences mm -hmm. that are on my um, uh, YouTube. Um, so I have a public YouTube and people can view some of the classes I've given there, especially on dreams. They are, they are public access now. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds Yeah, really so great. my last name is spelled R-E-N-A-U-D. It's, it's Renault. It's French Canadian. And um, it's often accompanied with uh, my religious moniker, O-M-I, Oblates of Mary Immaculate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, this has been lovely. Is there any um, last piece of, I don't know, wisdom or admonition that you'd like to share with, with our listeners today? Well, you know, there's two. The first one is, um, and I think it has to do a lot with the kind of work you do, continue to listen to your deep desires for healing and for getting close to God. I think that you can't go wrong when you listen to them. And secondly, I would say, trust your intuition that there are people on your way that are more than willing to listen to you, even if it, you have to make that extra little step um, where you're kind of standing in the portico and waiting if something is going to happen. Hmm. Um, and and um, just to, um, you know, believe that there are extremely benevolent forces uh, and people that are, that are around you and, and, and stay connected to that. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Father Daniel, for joining us today and sharing all of your wisdom and experience in, in dream work and shadow work. And everyone listening, I really encourage you to check out his videos on YouTube or look him up um, on his website or Facebook as well. So thank you all for joining us and tuning in on this lovely conversation. And Father Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks mm -hmm. again. Great to be with you. Bye-bye. Thanks.